This is an unusual, uh, thoroughly good podcast featuring an interview with uh, a pianist and conductor, Howard Shelley, who I met a couple of weeks ago in North London. Uh, Howard is a fascinating man. He conducts, uh, he has a, a long career as a piano soloist uh, and as a conductor, uh, which you will hear about in this extended interview. Uh, he is currently amongst other things, conducting a series of lunchtime concerts at St John Smith Square, in which he introduces Mozart piano concerto, piano concertos, signed uh, uh, sort of highlights particular areas of interest within the concerto that you're about to hear. Um, him and the orchestra play excerpts during this sort of explanatory sequence, uh, and then uh, and then they perform the entire concerto. It's um it's a very sort of it's very charming intimate informative and relaxed experience and i went along to uh one of his one of these concerts a few weeks ago a couple of months ago rather um and i loved it it was really good and normally i i don't really want very much annotation from the stage really i normally just want to hear the music uh but this was particularly good off the back of that concert i really wanted to meet howard because i thought that it would be really interesting to hear what he had to say, um, to hear how he talked about classical music, because he has a particular style, uh, and it's a very natural style, which is engaging. Um, but the reason for this introduction, really, is to say that uh, one of the joys about meeting people and interviewing them is that from time to time you quickly establish rapport with people or a connection with people, uh, which means that you quickly forget that you're actually interviewing them uh, and that you you find yourself having a really gorgeous conversation with a really gorgeous individual uh, who has um, sort of a lot of warmth and a lot of experience and knowledge and is and is willing to share all of that and and the reason for explaining that is because what you're about to hear is the longest ever podcast I have ever published. It is very nearly an hour, uh, and normally my guilt glands would kick in and go, oh no, hang on, it needs to be 30 minutes, it needs to be 40 minutes. The reason uh, this is nearly 60 minutes long is because there is nothing I want to edit out. It is, um, even if nobody else listens to this and nobody else enjoys it, I know that in a few years' time I will listen back to this and it will be like a picture postcard. It will be like a like an oral postcard of of a of a rather delightful hour spent in the company of um a really really engaging man um and so there are no edits this is the raw interview who are you and what do you do please i'm howard shelley i'm a concert pianist and conductor um and I am also a recording artist. I've made over 150 CDs now. And I travel the world, basically, giving concerts, as a con- mostly these days as, as a conductor and pianist. I'm my own soloist, so to speak. I will conduct the whole concert, but will also play a piano concerto of some sort, ranging from Mozart right through to, well, probably the latest I would do would be Grieg. The biggest I would do would be Grieg or Saint-Saëns directing it from the keyboard which is a very exciting 
a way to do it, a very satisfying way to do it, I find. So tell me, um, tell me three surprising things about you. Oh, Lord, I need a uh, warning of a question. Three surprising things. No, if I gave well, you a warning, then, then it wouldn't be. Yeah, well, <laughs> wouldn't have effect. well, I'm not an airy-fairy sort of arty type, I don't think, in as much as I'm a great do-it-yourself guy around the house. That sometimes surprises my colleagues when I say I've just, um, you know, done some plumbing or done this or that in the house but it gives me great pleasure to work with my hands maybe that's why I play the piano also because it's a, a very digital well not digital in the modern sense but in the old-fashioned sense uh, thing that's one um, so you're a plumber as well as uh, well a do-it-yourself okay, do I mean most plumber. of this house I've done you know every room I've done something in pretty major but um, <clears throat> Other than that, no, it's a, it's funny because, well, I'm still playing the piano that I, even though I put my hand through a window, that's maybe okay, a surprise, so surprising thing and too. cut it extremely badly. Um, when did you put, okay, we just need to, let's just park up the car and lay by, <laughs> when did you, when did you cut your hand? Oh, that was probably 30, 35 years ago now. And we're talking like stitches and, oh, and yes. the hospital ship. Um, and yeah, I mean, if I'd done it what 20 years before before microsurgery and there wasn't microsurgery I would no longer be playing the piano because I cut a major nerve um, which gave me the feeling to two fingers and they did microsurgery on it which stitched it all back together and I was lucky that very quickly actually I was back playing the piano at full strength again it took about six weeks out of my my uh, schedule so you put so so that i'm clear you put your hand through a window you have to go yes. to the hospital you had microsurgery and six weeks later you were playing the piano again yes <gasps> yes were you in any way worried at any stage i was of course i was i thought uh, i'm because i was a young ish man and i had family and things to support and music isn't the most sort of solid of professions anyway. And if word got out, well, word did get out, of course, that I had cut my hand very badly, um, it could affect your your future work. But uh, no, I was I was very lucky in that it was also around the time of the King's Cross fire, actually. Um, so when I went into hospital, I went to the same hospital as those had been in the King's Cross fire, and so this was a minor thing by comparison. But I did have a marvelous surgeon. Um, and he also loved music and he dealt with it in a way that was very sensible for my profession normally they would put it in plaster something like this he thought that was wrong for me even though a second opinion i got said well no he would this is that the other person would have put it in plaster uh, i went with my surgeon who said no and he turned out to be absolutely right because i've you know i've never had any problems from it since so did you find the transition from well, getting back to the piano, was that a, a straight, well, it wouldn't have been a straightforward process, presumably? It, it wasn't a huge retraining or anything. No, I was very lucky. I'd, I had lost the feeling, and even nowadays, the feeling on the insides of the fourth and fifth finger of my right hand is a little like pins and needles when you, you touch it. It's not completely normal. Mm. But it's, it's, it's not affected my piano. I was playing Rachmaninoff concertos quite soon afterwards, which which are a huge yes, um, they are. They're effort, very demanding. Uh, demanding physically on your hands and, and, uh, and shoulders and everything. So I was extremely lucky. Um, so that's number two. <laughs> that's number th well, I'm, well, then I'm running three? out of things, because <laughs> I was going to say that music is such a, a, a demanding profession to be in uh, that 
it tends to be your 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 focus is so much on the music itself, so other things don't happen there. What else? I'll can we leave it till a bit later, and I oh, might might suddenly. Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. I'm not very well. My memory's not so that, good that's these fine. things. Um, I'm interested to see that you have a picture. Well, of I tell you what. There's another okay. one that comes oh, to mind, but it's it's still to do with music and perf- and performing. It was the time I was playing the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto um, at the Festival Hall. They'd moved the piano out, um, and the, the, this starts with a very short introduction on on the. The, the orchestra and then the piano comes in with these huge chords which probably definitely um, and you put you put in an enormous amount of force your whole body goes behind that first chord and as I played it the piano started to move acro- across the platform at speed towards the cellos because by this time pianos had these very smooth wheels on them which meant they would move much easier than they had previously and they had brakes but the Stage hands had forgotten to put the, so I had to. <laughs> they had not put the brakes on, so for a start the cellists all got up and grabbed their instruments, held them in the air, and tried to get out of the way. It was moving that. that oh yes, fast. yes. Oh my goodness me! And they're only they're only just they're right at the tail end of the piano anyway, the cellists. So there's not room for manoeuvre. Um, and I also had to start trying to play these huge chords, but pulling the piano at the same time with my f- with my fingers towards me. Uh, and um, we we fortunately avoided a complete catastrophe, but it was one of the I need closure more the extraordinary. Did you, did you stop the performance and then? No, the no, we kept going. I'm not sure um, how much the audience really knew because there was another time I was live broadcast of Rachmaninoff Third Piano Concerto, and at the peak part of the cadenza, which is where you're playing absolutely alone. And in this concerto, it is one of the hugest cadenzas ever written for piano, and it becomes massive. There was this terrible cracking noise, and the whole pedal assembly under the piano fell off. So I no longer had the use of the pedals. It'd be like driving a car without accelerator or brakes, um, particularly brakes. (laughs) (laughs) And in a split second, because it was going out live on radio, but it wasn't on, on video or anything, so people couldn't see what was happening, I had to decide, do I stop now and say in a rather pathetic voice to the listening public oh the, the, the pedals have just fallen off the piano or do I soldier on as you know actors have to do in these circumstances and I did soldier on but I mean it made a farce of the sound of, because this was a place where you really need the pedals on the piano for sonority because yeah. you're jumping all over the place and you're holding you're trying to hold the chord in one place and then uh, powering up on top of it while that sonority lasts, but suddenly it sounded like a Mozart concerto where it should have been <laughs> Rachmaninoff at his most outspoken. Uh, so you soldiered on and you got to the end. And well, after noticed well, the, the first movement finished after that and I got under the piano quickly and because um, I knew how they were put on these things uh, and, and again it had been somebody putting the piano together had failed to put in a wedge that holds it from falling off and the conductor didn't he 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 looked around at me and says everything all right Howard when when he saw that I was groping under the piano and clunking about (laughs) but again I mean uh, and the the person who was announcing the broadcast was off stage so they couldn't uh, see what was going on to explain to the listening audience so I just had to grin and bear it put up and, and, and bear it you know and just do the best I could under difficult circumstances but there again um, somebody wrote to me after that, a, a quite a well-known musician, uh, saying how much he enjoyed the performance. And I said, "Did you 
realised that something went terribly wrong in it. And he said no. And I said, well, the pedals fell off. So it's surprising what audiences don't always pick up on, even mm. when it's quite... Even when you're <laughs> crawling underneath More the than obvious <laughs> and more than horrifying to the people in the performers. I do like the DIY link. I do appreciate the <laughs> DIY link. Um, the other thing I'd really like you to do, because I'm so completely struck by your lovely room, can you just describe the room and what's in it for oh, me? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, we've, we, the major thing is two huge black pianos. They're what we call concert grands which means they're nine foot long they're the sort of piano you need for a big concert hall one is a Steinway which is the greatest piano ever made and this was a piano that I used to rent from Steinways for concerts because they had a fleet that they would send out your favorite piano and when they retired it from that fleet they said how we know you like this piano would you like to buy it off us at a, as a special price you know and and uh, I said yeah so this is one of my favorite pianos that I've had for decades now, and it's gorgeous still. Um, the other is a, a Russian piano, it's Estonia piano, which is uh, equal size and is a very fine piano too. And I got that from the special deal with the <laughs> air conditioner that's on the on the wall, the, 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 right. which is also Russian. They they were bought by a guy who was putting in these mechanical actions into piano that play the old piano roles. And he never used that piano. And he said, look, I just want to move it. Had uh, Again, it was offered to me at a very, very good price, brand new. So I took it off him with the additional air conditioner, which is vital because this is a flat roofed room. Then I have filing cabinets galore, um, shelves galore with CDs and music stored, a big desk. And um, lots of technology. I mean, you are a technology man. Yes, well, I, I well, now actually, Apple Macs and iPads. I don't know when you noticed the concert you came to that I used. I was using an iPad. Yes, you were conducting from an iPad. Yeah. Yeah. This is wonderful. There is there's a, a an app for it, um, which um, you can put a PDF of your music into, and it's instantly there. And you can turn pages with a little Bluetooth uh, pedal. Um, wow! And it's revolutionised my life because I do a lot of recording, and because I've recorded so many uh, discs. Uh, I have to learn everything nowadays. It's, no, it's not my repertoire anymore. I'm, I'm, I have to learn everything new. And therefore, I play it for music uh, apart from anything else. And I don't have to have a page turner with this system uh, for several days at my disposal, which is quite tricky to line up. And anyway, it can be noisy and they might turn at the wrong time. I can turn forward or backwards any time I want. Yes, that reminds me of page-turning experiences that I had, which were terrifying. I think being a page-turner is, is far more terrifying than being a soloist, personally. Yes, so. I've even found that myself as, yeah. as a, another pianist. And, and uh, in fact, my, my wife and I, as a hysterical story, once when we were, because she's a pianist too, we were playing in Russia, and they gave us a couple of um, not terribly good page-turners. And we were playing Rachmaninoff uh, Suite, and her page turns were in a different place from mine but her page turner thought that if my page turner was turning mm. she ought to pay page and it was mm. absolutely every single time was in the wrong place because she couldn't read music and because if you're feeling under pressure as a page turner if you're feeling under pressure and you're not quite sure yeah if you lose concentration for a moment then you're naturally going to go, oh, they, you know, they've, they've gone, so I should probably go too. Uh, oh, it's, oh, I'm feeling quite exactly. sick. Yes, <laughs> it does make you sick because then you feel responsible also if it causes problems. So, that's, uh, so yes, that's the, the technology. Apart from that, I have pictures of composers who I adore or 
pictures that uh, I'm fond of that have come into my hands, particularly Rachmaninoff. Yes, I was going to say, you've got a picture of Rachmaninoff by the piano, <clears throat> and so clearly he is very special to you. Oh, absolutely. Well, one of my first major recordings was, in fact, all the works that he ever wrote, which took nine discs, I think. Then, then the concertos on top, then the songs on this, all the solo piano pieces he wrote. And uh, that was really a, a major building block for my career in my 20s. And I just love his music. I still love his music. And um, um, I'm coming back to, I'm playing all the concertos actually with my son, who there's a picture of there. He's a conductor, right. a very successful conductor. Now he's conductor of the Nuremberg Symphony Orchestra in Germany and the conductor of the National Arts Centre Orchestra in Ottawa in Canada. And one of the named conductors of the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra also in London. And we, I mean, he's been working in the business for years and um, he's often said to me, why don't we do something together, Dad? And <clears throat> I've said, well, let's let's leave it for a while and, and uh, put it off. But uh, <laughs> let's, finally, let's we're, we're, we're doing it once or twice and we're going to do, with an orchestra that I'm very close to in Australia next year, we're going to do all the Rachmaninoff concertos in two concerts in one one in in three days in fact uh, two concerts over three days uh and and that'll wow, be that is demanding really i mean that's that's, that's really huge. demanding yes. at my age i'm going to have to go into training i didn't mean that I didn't no mean no <laughs> no i know you didn't but even yeah. as a 20 year old i mean yeah, things change i don't have the same quite the same stress mentally that i would have had as a 20 year old in playing but of course uh, physically you you actually in, in my business you have to keep very strong very well because when you're not playing you're traveling or you're yes, standing for yeah. six hours in front of an orchestra rehearsing or you're carrying cases or you're you're dealing adapting to time changes and things you know you you do actually it's very draining or potentially very draining business although it also of course gives you a lot back in terms of um, emotional energy you get a lot fed back to you from audiences and uh, uh, and the reactions they give you but it is a demanding um, business from, from a physical point of view so yes that that I will have to I'm already sort of thinking in terms of <laughs> training for that <laughs> and it's a few months away still so did you know uh did you ever meet Dupre or Benjamin Britten because you were you were born in 1950 weren't you yes did you ever lean Dupre yes yeah. oh yes actually I did but she was uh, only when she was very ill uh, in the final stages of her right. her, her uh, um multiple sclerosis um, oh yes uh, and Benjamin Britten I, I went up to a couple of times to the uh, Albra Festival actually standing in at the, that, that, because that was my early uh, teens uh, my early 20s rather and I met him and Peter Pierce uh, towards the end of Britain's life yeah. um, what was oh, he yeah. like there is a reason for asking it sort of it springs from the picture but what, what was Britain like well, I can't say I spent a lot of time with him. I went to rehearse in his study, which is uh, the Red House oh. in Albrook. It was, it was lovely. He was very sweet to me. I was standing in at the last minute and they were trying to make life good. And, and he didn't actually come to the concert. I don't think he was well enough. Um, but my experience of him was certainly a very pleasant man. And Peter Pierce was charming. He did come to the concert and came round and said very nice things. At the do, you, do you recall, and Britain is a bit of a hero of mine, even though, you know, I he seems to have this sort of weird aura around him and I'm thinking about that because you have a picture of Rachmaninoff by the yes. piano that's the link that I was making and I often think that 
uh, he is a man I come from Suffolk as well yes. so you know um, and worked at Snape um, I often think that he's a man that I would have liked to have met had I just been old enough because I was born four years before he died that, which is why I'm sort of slightly fascinated by people if they've met him spent any time with him and, and also what sort of influence he had on the musical world at that time Yes, well, I can't say I did know him that well enough. I, kn I knew people who knew him, Imogen Holston and, and people like that. And um, the quality of his music making is, is such, you know, even when he was conducting Mozart piano concertos and things with Clifford Curzon, that uh, you just know he was a, a great and wonderful person. Um, <clears throat> but, but I can't say I knew him that well. To, do, you to recall, do you recall the impact that he might have had on the, on the music industry or you know the cultural scene in the 60s or am I am I am I scrabbling around here maybe I'm scrabbling around too much well I I actually was in the, the school choir in my 60s the, the school choir Highgate school choir which actually did the first recording of the Britain War Requiem and um, we also gave a lot of the first performances uh, around Europe and that was a really exciting time and that was an incredibly important piece, the Raw War Requiem, though it had quite mixed review feelings that people had about it at the time, because of course Benjamin Britten was a conscientious. If I remember rightly, he was a conscientious. What's the expression? Conscientious objector. Objector and went to the states, went didn't to the states, he? Yeah. So I think there was this slight feeling that, uh, you know, as people like to do, the, the criticism that he should be writing the piece, but. It was a, it's a magnificent and extraordinary yes. work. Um, I'm not quite answering your question, though, am no, I? No, but that's interesting. I didn't know... But, but you're saying that you sang in the choir um, for the premiere, presumably. Yeah, I'm not sure that it was... A, I think the premiere was at Coventry Cathedral. OK. And my memory f is, is no, not that's right. great. No, no, I, Coventry, I wish I had a superb record. Uh, Coventry Cathedral was the premiere, uh, and... So presumably you sang in the in the prom. We the we Albert did it Hall. in the Albert Hall. We right. did it in the Albert Hall. David Wilcox was involved, and Britain may have been conducting also. Um, Pritch Pritchard conducting, yes. There's footage of that at the Red House Library. Right, of that, of that right. And it is quite for me, you know, looking at it and think, wow, amazing, amazing. And we and we were always hidden. The boys' chorus, as you will know, is always hidden somewhere. And it was very exciting for me because I probably was only 13 or 14, 63, 64. And I had to act as the sort of go-between to, because there was no, um, uh, none of this video mm. equipment in those days. So you couldn't have a short circuit, a uh, sort of short, a closed circuit yeah. television or anything. So I had to relay the beat wherever we were. And at one stage it was La Scala Milan, for instance, between the, the main conductor and the boys' choir hidden up, we were right above the stage in, in Milan. And so it was, it was a, an exciting time for me to be that involved in the, the, these major performances. But no, he was a huge um, influence in music uh, at, at the, that time. And uh, of course, the Aldborough Festival was a, a wonderful um, and very substantial festival in the days when there weren't that many uh, music festivals. Um, but having said that, he also tended to live... I, I was in the new music world, uh, the contemporary music world, quite a lot in my 20s because Boulez asked me to do quite a lot with the, um, the BBC Symphony Orchestra and things. And there was this 
feeling in the very sharp-edged contemporary world that, that Britain was, if you like, behind the loop a bit by then. But that happens to so many composers, you know, they during their lifetimes they go in and out of fashion they um, no more than Rachmaninoff yes no more than Rachmaninoff who was damned in his most of his life for being uh, a romantic you know after the romantic era was over and yet he's Mm. since 19th middle of the 19th 20th century we've begun to appreciate him again he was he was regarded as vulgar and something you sort of cleaned off your jacket for for decades that's snobbery isn't it that's it is that was sort of, sn- yeah, but that was quite strong in the in the middle of the twentieth century, especially with the rise of um, modern, very modern music. Uh, all this stuff was very much criticised. The, the stuff that wasn't quite as avant garde. Um, was, so was there was there a sort of a feeling that uh, in order for um, if you were writing modern music, if you were writing contemporary music, then you really had to push as far as you possibly could Absolutely. in order for it to be valid. Yeah. Yeah, and it 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 melody. Of course, on a simple basis, something like melody mm. was out. Yes, um, and that's why somebody like Malcolm Williamson didn't uh, do so tremendously well because he clearly had he had an extraordinary gift for melody, and although he could write twelve tone music as as well or better than the next guy, he would suddenly break from this twelve tone writing into a luscious sort of Hollywood type melody and. Uh, and that would damn him with those people at that time. And um. where do you think we are with melody now? Because I'd had this con- similar kind of conversation with Emma Johnson, uh, the clarinetist, who had sort of I'd sort of been inspired by her to learn the clarinet because of a piece of music written by Paul, somebody whose name I can't remember. Victorian Kitchen Garden. I mean, it's terribly quaint, utterly gorgeous, oh, yes. uh, and I can't remember his name, but that isn't really important. Um, and she was she was sort of bemoaning the fact that there was a lot of criticism about melody and that actually for people to be introduced at an early age melody was really important uh, and yet there's, there's a slight sort of like well actually you know we don't want it to be too tuneful otherwise it doesn't have any depth I just I just wonder where you think we are with melody now well I think it's a little bit like styles in clothes and the length of your hair and things I don't know whether you're old enough to recall when, if you had short hair, when it was long, you were regarded as some sort of weirdo. No, I don't recall. And you were really quite embarrassed about it. Well, I went through the long hair business in the 70s, and you just had to have long hair, you know. And, uh, but now all styles go at once. That was not something that used to happen. You used to move from one extreme to another extreme, you know, long long trousers or wide baggy trousers to narrow trousers um now they sort of coexist and i think that's the same case with music there had to be this sort of extreme as a reaction to romantic um romantic richness and fullness which found its sort of end game in wagner that something had to give because it had all been dug out if you like it was like a mine that had had finally given up producing its coal and the reaction was um, to a large part uh, neoclassical going back to the clean lines the simple clear sounds of um, the classic and baroque composers Um, and the other was to write music that no longer adhered to the rules of harmony that had become so entrenched Um, 
And that led all sorts of ways and all sorts of different sounds and different musics. I mean, even the writing of music. My wife and I did a piece by George Crumb once. Um, I think it's called Summer Music. Uh, and even one of the movements was written in a circle on the page. And to read it was next to impossible. Uh, but people were trying everything. And when I first worked with Boulez, for instance, the very first session, and I was young and actually at college, I hadn't been exposed to a lot of uh, really avant-garde music but I noticed from this piano part that I had to have sticks on the strings in the piano oh, so prepared yes, so prepared, prepared yeah. piano and I had to know which note uh, and you which had to do strings and I had to, well, and, I had yeah. to go, and Boulez was incredibly impressed that I arrived with my own sticks you know the <laughs> branches from the guard, tree in the garden um, uh, <laughs> I don't uh, and, uh, how very resourceful and how very DIY. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It's, it's kicked in there. Um, but the, the, no, that was uh, that was, uh, and we even had to sing in certain. There, there was another of these crumb pieces, I think it was. Um, we had to sing when we were playing, and the percussionists had to play tin whistles and things. I remember being fascinated studying them at university because I, I kind of understood why why they were doing it it kind of opened your mind it did challenge you it did make you think about well why wouldn't you do this rather than saying why would you why wouldn't you prepare a piano and make all sorts of noise um uh so i remember being quite fascinated by it but i wonder whether you were or whether it's something that you just did it was something i i guess i was drawn into and enjoyed doing um very much, but the demands it made on you were were very different from the demands that you or that I had been trained to fulfil. Because obviously you're trained on the major Austro-German repertoire and uh, the Romantic repertoire and how to play the piano in a particular way. This didn't come into it, uh, so it was a it was a challenge, always a challenge, and. Um, always very exciting I mean it was a very exciting world at the time but it, they did very much close their minds to what else had gone in music it was important for them somehow I think to be so involved in that world that they were only um, coming up with absolutely fresh ideas and fresh approaches which you can sort of understand um, I suppose it's there are similarities in, in, in you know the development of the technical world or the after the industrial the, the various revolutions that have been you know once we had miniaturization in in, um, in digital uh, production then that of course also fed into music uh, using uh, using different forms of electronic devices to which up to that time, for instance, for electronic pianos were hated by anybody in the classical world. Yes. The old Hammond pianos and things which had a particularly... <laughs> and I'd argue they still are and should be. <laughs> <laughs> some but of them, know. but some of them, of course, they're now they're, they're, they, they sample great instruments. Hmm. I mean, some of these digital organs that they put... I was an organist when I was young and hated the idea of uh, electronic organs in those days, but now... They sample the greatest organs in the world. So you can have, you know, Notre Dame, you can have the 32-foot stop and you're, with your feet at Notre Dame, uh, the sound of Notre Dame Cathedral there uh, through the speakers. Yeah, no, you, and still have, you still haven't told it to me. No, no I, I mean, I can see you trying. It's very impressive. But... <laughs> no, it's, uh... 
Um, so you've got. Uh, I've been to one of your uh, London Motor Players concerts, which I really enjoyed. Um, you've got two more between now and Christmas. Um, I think. I, I hope. Think I'm looking at you, hoping I, that you I can think tell it may me. Be three. <laughs> um, yeah. And can you tell me? Because I haven't. This is the part of the research that I haven't done. Um, oh, so yes. Yeah, so they're the. Uh, early ones, right? So, can you tell me about? Well, let's let's go with the the obvious question. Which one of those is your favourite? Well, um, this is the third year we've been doing this. The third season we've been doing it, and uh, Mozart wrote about twenty three piano concertos, and we haven't, except for the concert you came to, which was a special audience request mm. program uh, to repeat one of the the favourites so far. We haven't repeated a piano concerto. Uh, this is the extraordinary thing about this time in Mozart's life. Uh, of those 23, he wrote 12 of them in just three years in Vienna, 1784 to 86. He had newly moved to Vienna, having been got fed up with Salzburg because his father was very demanding and uh, very censorious on him. And... Um, the Archbishop of Salzburg, who anybody who's visited Salzburg will know that castle that sits above the city and looks like it's in charge of the city, that you're in its shadow. Well, the Archbishop lived up there, and he was telling what Mozart, what he must do and what he could write and what he couldn't write. And each time Mozart had travelled, which he did a lot outside Salzburg, he found it more and more small-scale and more and more uh, straight-jacketing, if you like. But he had finally got away to Vienna, and he was the first first composer ever to make a living from just writing music because in those early years in Vienna the audience would come only probably about 170 people but they would come and pay to listen to him perform one of these new concertos he would have his little piano forte piano wheeled across the cobbles of Vienna and put into a usually a room behind a bar or in a hotel of some sort or a restaurant and he would play a new piece to these Viennese, and they loved them to begin with. Out of those three years, they, they, they would come regularly, and he would take the money from the house, so to speak, uh, less expenses. And he was doing really rather well. It was a so time. This is, this is music which he was writing at his, at his height. Yes, absolutely, in his greatest years. Yes. In these three years, uh, you, your, your eyebrows raise when I say he wrote 12 of these yes. great concertos. Well, I mean, that seems like a lot of work. Yeah, but in the same three years, incidentally, he wrote the Prague Symphony, he wrote the Marriage of Figaro, plus another opera. He wrote both of the wonderful piano quartets, the piano and wind quintet, the piano-viola um, trio, the... the um, I can't remember the name of it just at the moment, but... Uh, plus... A number of Kegelstadt. the Kegelstadt, well yeah. done. Um, I don't know where that came from, but let's just go with brilliant. it. Brilliant, let's not Fantastic. question it. Fantastic. <laughs> um, and he also wrote piano sonatas and a, a lot else, but that's just unbelievable. Yes. And this was the same time he got married and he bought a, a lovely house for himself in Vienna. But it all trickled away rather quickly. In the third year, the audience stopped coming in the same numbers and they moved on to the next sort of exciting thing in Vienna. I don't even know what it was. It's probably been forgotten very quickly since. They didn't realise what they had in Mozart. We, we know that. Uh, uh, but this has to be, if you look back through the history of music, for one composer to write all that great, great music in three years, 
has to be surely the three most important years almost in the development of of uh, the classical form because these the music that Mozart wrote is as near perfect as uh, as we musicians can uh, judge music so what what are the this is a rotten thing but what are the elements that that we would be looking that we've been listening out for which define it as well, as that period this that this this is the most extraordinary thing about mozart he writes simple music and I, again and we as musicians can't understand how he could turn music that obeys all the tight rules of classical form of the time um and which didn't allow a lot of uh, it didn't even it barely allowed chromatic writing never mind about diminished chords and things like that that the romantics made so much of it was very simple straightforward tonic dominant a lot of the time and yet he made it so unique and seemed so natural to us well of course there is a naturalness um in classical harmony because in every single note there is a hidden group of harmonics that climb up um, so I don't know whether I can do this on microphone but if I for instance hold a chord here on the piano three notes silently I'm holding them down yeah. now and then play very loudly a note that's on that same chord low down on the piano It makes all those notes, the harmonics of those notes, all sound in harmony. And it's those, it's those it's notes the that major are holding chord down silently that are ringing. That are ringing. Yes, yes. I might because that hammers are. Let me let me that. try again. See if I get a better on this. That's quite a strong ring on. From I'll do it one more time. Now, as you will have seen, John, I didn't play those no. notes. But that is why a, a, a chord like that sounds so natural to us as human beings, because it's all hidden there in the sound of a single note. And the same, uh, I, I it would take a while to demonstrate it, but there are also the dominant uh, notes. Uh, so the dominant of that is like the Amen sort of. Uh, and that's, I think, why the human body and the human ear react so well to Mozart. You know, they now reckon Mozart helps children to learn and things and uh, calms the breast and all that sort of thing. And I'm sure that's what's at the bottom of it, because that is the language he spoke. So it's but, not hyperbole, then? It's not, no, it's not people sort of being no, slightly schematic. There is something rooted in, his, in the music of that time the way that composers were using harmony absolutely which means that that's why it's so I, I think that's why baroque and classical well, from the classical period the music it sort of makes us feel so good those of us who react to it at all you know um, but having said that Mozart didn't stretch too far out of the box not like Beethoven who started to wrestle with this box of classical music rules if you like and tr was always trying to push out the walls. Mozart accepted it as it was, but made such beautiful music from inside it, and music that sounds so natural that even we uh, we musicians can't actually analyse what it is about him, uh, his his music that makes it so special. But it's 
and, and the thing with Mozart is it was as if this music was just came to him as a, as a completed each work as a complete work that he just then wrote down it was as if God or whatever power was dictating it to him you know it's been said that if if a, a, a copyist a music copyist of the time with a quill pen and things um, had sat down and wrote Mozart's music it would have taken longer than Mozart's lifetime to have written it all out that's how much he wrote and whereas Beethoven would write sketches for months years in advance of creating a piece by really hard work like I, I sometimes liken it to cutting out rock you know hacking into rock and finding Mozart was all in the air with air underneath it and and just seems to have been well there's greater people than I have said you know Mozart's music as if God Neville Cardus the famous uh, a reviewer of music said you know one I forget I think it's the magic flute is the only opera that could have been written by God himself you know um, and the wonderful things that many many composers have said it from Schubert onwards about Mozart are, are, are fantastic so does that make him daunting for you to play I mean I well, don't know that it would be daunting it, no, it, but. no it does daunt musicians because it needs to be so perfect and so immaculate in its performance that you don't have a lot of options how you make it also emotional music or, or how you make it expressive music because the only thing that you know with Mozart is when he when he does use a chromatic which is lines that are very close the notes are very close together you know he wants that line to be expressive but basically you're not supposed to pull the tempos around in Mozart too much uh, you mustn't do much rubato it must have this constant feeling of natural progression forward you know you say you can't you can't pull the tempos around but presumably that means that you can the the tempos are not set as long as you don't pull them around within the within the movement yes exactly I mean? yeah. Yeah, okay. well with romantic music you can yes, you can and floods of, of notes you can you can pull it around you can do yeah. anything you like with a with a, a rack manner of this. <laughs> tell you how exciting it is <laughs> to sit next to a piano and hear that well, played. It's not overwhelming. Uh, no, I mean, but, but then if I play a Mozart phrase after... I can't do... T no. No, that would be... That would be silly. <laughs> Which is the equivalent of what might, one might do with a romantic phrase. And of course, uh, when... One is talking in such different terms for music of that complexity and the flood of notes. Um, Rachmaninoff probably wrote, oh, what, of 500 notes to every one that Mozart would have written? Uh, I, I once... <laughs> in a bored moment counted the number of notes even in a Mozart concerto that a pianist has to play and it's something in the region of 10,000 even in a, in a straightforward Mozart when you, when you get to Rachmaninoff you, you can play several thousand notes in one page or two pages you know at his most complex um, exciting <laughs> uh, well it, it is but it's also uh, and it's terrifying it's really challenging yeah. um, but 
uh, I'm trying to show the difference between um, the simplicity of Mozart and how one just gets that feeling of beauty and serenity and the fact that it's floating in the air, not uh, sitting on the ground. With Beethoven, you know, when you play a Beethoven concerto, you you know, the, the, the beginning of the Emperor. <laughs> so overblown <laughs> yeah but it's a completely different sound from even a, even a big uh, Mozart concerto um, you know every, everything has to be so much lighter and the finger work has to be at the same time almost dry uh, so that you, every every note has uh, what's, uh, what can I think of uh, Every note there, although it's a, it's a legato line in a sense, every note has to have its own little heart to it, a little tiny bit of expression. And that's what the art is in Mozart. It's, it's an art that people wouldn't even know you were doing, but every note has a little bit of life in it. It's also counterintuitive for the listener. Yes. Because as a listener, we we sit back and go oh it's Mozart yeah and so our assumption is well because we can because we can understand it because we can process it it must therefore be fairly straightforward to play yes yes but you look at a Schnabel said what did he say uh, I won't remember exactly but it's it's um, it's easy for oh I'll, I'll, I'll look up the quotes uh, before before we go but something about it being easy for children to play but hard for adults Mozart yes yeah, and uh, now the phrase I've seen um, perfection. and I work for hours still even after years of playing a piece like this and I'm, I haven't played this in weeks but Within that, those very fast notes, there are, are, are beautiful twists and turns that you can't sort of ignore, but you mustn't also sound like you're making a thing of them. It's got to be as natural, natural as light rainfall for f falling, if you like. Um, but it does need to, at the same time, speak, and something like... Absolutely heartbreaking. It is, but you know, one would be tempted to. Yeah, that isn't. <laughs> yeah, no, no, less so. Less heart. Yeah, though? yes. You, there's, uh, there's something about the delicacy and the, the, the sort of. Oh, it's, it's almost like China, isn't it? That that it could you feel it could so easily be broken. Yes. That, uh, Even there, I'm pushing what one is allowed to do, if you like, in, in inverted commas. With, 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 with rabato. With right, I'm pushing yeah. it to an extreme. And, and every time I go back to one of these concertos, I think again about whether I'm overdoing it or when underdoing it. When you're thinking about that, 
are you are you thinking about a tutor a professor who's saying you shouldn't do that or are you thinking there will be some nerd in the audience who'll go Chevy um, well, I, I learned the rules thing. with my professors. I learned the rules when I was a student, or, or a lot of them, although a, a lot has also been written about since then, and a lot has been found out about. I was um, trained before the original instrument um, uh, movement got into really full swing, and original... Uh, I mean, when I was a student, interestingly enough, or tragically enough, uh, you know, we were told that the slow movements that you know the great conductors did at those times of which lasted forever of the mozart symphonies and things were the way to do it you just didn't Very even definitive. question yeah. that that you would might take a little bit faster no no this uh, these were you know the great performances were held as as the way it's done and it's only since then that um, <clears throat> uh, research has proved that these were quite wrong actually far too slow most most Mozart was taken particularly slow movements in those days if you look back to somebody like Hummel who lived with Mozart when he was a kid um, and who Mozart thought was going to be a greater composer than he was um, he, he listed off uh, in the editions he oversaw at the time metronome marks for all these movements and they're really quite fast a lot of them um, so so you know, there's this is a developing form again. It's it's almost like styles in, in in clothing. Audiences get used to different types of performance, and um, and it's always a shifting thing, which I suppose is important because it's a very much a living art music. I was struck by how um, we must talk about the concerts. Really, I mean that's the reason for this. Uh, <laughs> I was struck by how the London Mozart players played with tremendous energy. I don't know whether I just imagined that or whether I was having a particularly upbeat day. Uh, yeah. But is that is that the cut or is that to do with the acoustic? No, no, it's it's absolutely because they're um, and we're together. We've worked together for thirty or forty years. Um, we together uh, uh, feel so comfortable in the Mozart medium. The moment the notes are there in front of us, uh, that we can give that energy and know at what point to stop just naturally because that's an important part you know you'd uh, if if i i would say sometimes to them it's beginning to sound a little bit like beethoven they'd know immediately what i meant and took take a little bit of the weight out of the sound um but it's important to feel at, at ease absolutely spontaneous with the idiom of mozart because then you can put all the energy or the expression or whatever the mood needs of the music you can put it in, in the, with confidence that you're not going to overstep the limits. That's the difficulty with Mozart. If you're constantly thinking, oh, oh, am I playing that a bit too fast, a bit too loud, a bit too much energy, you're never going to give a, um, a, a believable performance or a satisfying performance of it, probably. And we've done these works a lot over the years. Um, and our interpretation has grown together, which is wonderful, so that when I sit down with them, we just... It's almost like we take over where we last left off uh, playing this piece, and it may have been five years previously, and it's a lovely thing. I noticed I asked you which one of those three was your favourite, and you either dodged the question or you didn't hear the question, or, or so I'm going to ask you that again. Which one of the, the 13, 14, or 15 is your well, favourite? Is that a I'm, rotten I'm thing to I'm tempted to say something that is a rather sickening when I hear it from others. Um, I think I've heard it from actors and things. That... 
that it they're tends all to my be, favorite. No, it tends <laughs> to be the one you're doing at the time because right, okay. they all have such beauties. To pick one would be um, Do you, very difficult. Do you feel like you're denying a child if, or denying the two other children if you... Well, you see, um, I, I, keep, I, I look at one and think, yeah, no, I love that one. I tell you, actually, one of my most favorite is, is one that he wrote when he was quite young, K271, uh, in E flat, which starts. <laughs> and it has a lovely last moon. Sit straight, and then I might get it right. Yeah. Drop a beat there. Well, I'm sure. Yeah, I think maybe. No, it's. Um, but I, I only wanted to show that it's it's just bounding with yes. uh, energy and excitement, and and it has a fabulously deep. Oh, slow oh, movement. Lord. And you've got a Do you want to get that? That's no, my fine. wife will get it. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's not what. So that they're not. That no, we've done that already. Okay. No, um, what I was going to explain, because we're on the third series, we're actually getting into concertos that are not that well known, mm. but are all just as lovely. That's the thing about Mozart piano concertos. They are all magnificent in their way. And I can see many uh, this see Well, they're all just uh, gorgeous. No, I, I wouldn't. I would I find it very difficult to okay. to choose one. And this is the most extraordinary thing about them that they are such perfect pieces of music. Uh, the, and they, they make a perfect lunchtime concert in that people can either come and have a meal beforehand in the crypt in St. John's, or afterwards they can have a meal and a drink and uh, meet some of the performers and uh, some of the other audience who are committed. I mean, we have a, a, a terrific audience there that have been coming regularly all the way along. Um, and with just a little introduction from me, giving people sort of what I like to think of as oral landmarks. So they think during, because a, a symphonic work, which is what a piano, these piano concertos are like, they're, they're large symphonic work. I mean, you're talking 25 minutes, a half an hour. And if I heard a piece for the first time, I would feel, even as a classical musician, I would feel, well, I wish I knew a little bit more about where this is going and what point that is. Uh, and I, uh, do people do come up and say, well, it was so helpful to suddenly hear what you had uh, given an example of before the performance, because it then made that much more sense to me. Um, so that's what I, as you know, do do beforehand. Then we do a, a straightforward uh, performance of the piece. And then I usually have a little time to add a little bonus. I don't know whether you noticed we I threw didn't in... stick around for the bonus oh, actually, which was a, which is a shame because yes. I just thought that when we got to the you know when they all started applauding that was it and I need to go. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, no, we we did the last movie of the Jupiter Symphony actually, which is a fantastic piece. Um, uh, as as a little extra, if there's time, I'll just fill it with something you uh, a little encore you might say. Uh, amazing thing about. The ease with which he wrote, though, Mozart, is demonstrated. I was in 
Holland last week playing uh, uh, one of the Mozart concertos that starts. He wrote four concertos in a row that used that exact same rhythm. So another one is. There were four consecutive concertos, and incidentally, he wrote one some years earlier with uh, exactly the same rhythm. Um, it's I sometimes describe it in always always like putting your key in the car when you used to do that and turning the motor over. It just gets you started, so then the the, the motor runs. And he each of those is a completely different work, even though he starts with the identical rhythm. And do we know how he would compose them? Was he? Well, I he, mean, it he makes just you think of improvisation. He hardly, whereas, as I was saying with Beethoven, he wrote sketches, and you could see from his uh, manuscripts that he was crossing stuff out all the time and rewriting and reorchestrating it. Mozart seemed almost just to write a clean copy straight off. There are occasions when he would just cross something out and rewrite it slightly, but it's as if, as I said before, it was being. It was fully formed in his mind before he wrote it down. This clearly was the case with uh, the way he produced music, because it was often that it was just dry when he gave the first performance of these works, and and he he had um, literally just written in the two or three days beforehand. Um, I think you covered everything that I wanted to talk about, um, and I plus a lot. No, and, I, and <laughs> I haven't had to ask very many questions, which is which is always good. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to tell me that well, I've Well, we might you? tell people who might be interested that the, the next concert is on the 26th of October. They, these are all Wednesday lunch times, which, of course, knocks some people out because they've got uh, jobs to do. Well, they need to prioritise. But, uh, <laughs> if only. Uh, but, uh, on the other hand, people who are retired and looking for things to do in the centre of London, it's a lovely... Uh, we have people who come down from Newcastle. An wow. El elderly couple who come down from Newcastle, take the train at five o'clock in the morning and come to the concert and go back afterwards plus another couple from Lancaster and uh, they come repeatedly 16th of November is the next one these are all at uh, five past one on a Wednesday afternoon um, and the last one before Christmas will be on the 7th of December then there are two more after Christmas 18th of January 15th of February and then we're actually doing a special in March at lunchtime where we will do Beethoven's uh, violin concerto in the piano version that he made of it because last last season we in addition to the Mozart concertos we did all the Beethoven concertos at lunchtime concerts and we, we didn't do this final one if you like uh, which is sometimes regarded as his sixth concerto how very good to know thank you very much indeed you're very welcome John <laughs>